Let us now uh, jump into Shorter Catechism question 29, uh, where we are asked, how are we made partakers of the redemption purchased by Christ? We are made partakers of the redemption purchased by Christ by the effectual application of it to us by the Holy Spirit. Now, we have talked about the Lord Jesus Christ as being the only Redeemer uh, of God's elect. The Lord Jesus Christ, there is no other Redeemer than the Lord Jesus Christ. And we have learned that he has become our prophet, our priest, and our king, and has so accomplished our salvation. I think there is no doubt that Christ has accomplished our salvation for us. But the salvation accomplished alone is not enough. So if salvation is only accomplished, we would not be saved. It would stand there. It would stand ready. Uh, everything was earned by the Lord Jesus Christ, but it was never applied. So this salvation needs to be applied. Let's say you have a big debt at a bank, and this bank is about to uh, go after you for not paying your debt, and somebody else says, I have the funds ready. You're safe, and you are so happy. But the problem is uh, these funds are never transferred onto your account, so it helps you actually nothing. And that would be the same thing if our redemption is only accomplished but not applied. And that's what this question 29 is ringing in, the whole question of the application of this um, accomplished uh, salvation. So who does that? Who does the application? The application of our salvation is being uh, achieved uh, by the third person of the Trinity, the, the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit, of course, is also the Spirit of Christ, isn't it? Isn't he? So the Holy Spirit is not, and that's in the minds of many, as if the Holy Spirit was a, a blind force or a blind power. Uh, we have to get rid of that thinking. The Holy Spirit is a person. He's one of the three persons of, or to be, uh, the, the triune God. So he is a person which, or who is equal with the Father and uh, the Son. Never think of the Holy Spirit as a force. And I got to tell you, I think I know why. In, in the minds of many upright believers in good churches, um, the Holy Spirit is seen as kind of an add-on to the real God, right? As a blind force. Because I don't think we speak enough about the Holy Spirit in Reformed churches. Uh, and and I, I, there's, a, there's a reason, I almost said a good reason, but there's never a good reason to neglect the Holy Spirit. But the reason is, and we talked about this in Albania a lot, um, the reason is that we're so afraid of the charismatic movement um, that we have so swung the pendulum the other way that we're neglecting the Holy Spirit. And it goes to a degree where we do not even talk much about the application of salvation anymore. We sit in Reformed churches and we just assume everybody who's sitting here is saved because they sit here. And, and we never talk uh, about actually the Holy Spirit having to apply this salvation to us. And I, I got to say openly, and I, I don't mean this in a mean-spirited way, but I think one branch of Dutch Reformed theology is especially susceptible uh, to this kind of thinking. And I would think that this is the strand that follows Kuiper, 
Um, and I don't think uh, Abraham Kuyper himself uh, was like that, but I think often the followers are much worse than their, than their leaders. And I don't think uh, if, you, if we had Abraham, Dr. Abraham Kuyper here now, and he would wholeheartedly agree that the Holy Spirit has to apply salvation, but his followers, the so-called Kuyperians or Neo-Kuyperians, have developed a, a theology in which salvation is properly accomplished. There is no discussion about that. But it's being completely ignored to a degree that it, this salvation has to be applied by the Holy Spirit. And this application makes all the difference between life and death, between darkness and light. And we, we do not want to speak about that. And when I, I came... Um, into these circles, I was actually, I have to say, a little bit um, <clears throat> naive, not dealing enough with this question, first in Neo-Kyperian academia, and I, would, I was shocked how many of my students were obviously unconverted. Good kids, but that's not enough. Good kids by the uh, terms that we have in the world, but so I would start to mention the gospel often in my classes, and then I was told by the president, we do not evangelize our students. And that caught me, or that made me start researching what in the world is going on here. Everybody else would thank you in the Christian university that you make sure that the students know the gospel, embrace the gospel, walk in the gospel, are saved. And then I realized there's a whole world, a whole branch of Reformed theology that has bought into a salvation, a salvation accomplished only, almost. Uh, they don't talk about the applied. And maybe now it makes sense to you why places like Puritan Seminary exist, uh, or the Heritage Reformed, or the Free Reformed, and why they always talk about experiential theology. Because they have realized that this is happening, and they want to make sure we do not abandon the fact that this redemption accomplished must be applied. It must be applied in an experiential way. It has to be experienced. Something has to happen. And by experience, again, I have to say it. I don't mean the charismatic, you know, going overboard with feelings. What I mean, it has to happen in your life. And it has to visibly happen uh, in a person's life for that person to become uh, a Christian. But uh, let us begin with the first things. Our salvation is a Trinitarian act. We have to understand that. Uh, it's not one only person of the Trinity that accomplished or applied or accomplished and applied our salvation. Our salvation is a Trinitarian act. The Father has given uh, the Son uh, to be the only redeemer of his elect. The Father has decreed it. The Father has given uh, the Son. The Son has purchased our redemption with his active and passive obedience. Just as a reminder, his active obedience is Christ during his life on earth, actively keeping the law of God in every detail. His passive obedience is him allowing and willingly being crucified and killed on the cross. So he was actively and passively obedient. He lived the life of righteousness, died the death of a sinner for us. So he purchased our redemption. And the Holy Spirit, the third person, and when it comes to our salvation, applies, <coughs> applies redemption uh, to the experience uh, 
of the uh, elect. And uh, so redemption is a Trinitarian act and not only one person or two uh, of the Trinity. Well, there are several false views uh, on uh, redemption applied. I've already mentioned this, what is sometimes called uh, presumptive regeneration that we kind of neglect. We just assume that it happens when you're sitting in the church, this um, uh, application of redemption. Uh, that, of course, in my point of view, is a, a, a false um, teaching of this uh, uh, holistic redemption, uh, an extreme um, way that it has gone into heresy to the point of another gospel would be what is called the federal vision heresy. Uh, many of you don't know, uh, remember federal vision, and federal vision was a false doctrine that was being spread in the early 2000s by um, men uh, that are uh, around, I would say, Doug Wilson and that, that area, and that's why I, I, I'm going to say it very openly, I'm not a follower of Doug Wilson, nor will I be, unless he openly repents. Uh, of federal vision, which basically objectified salvation to a degree that says through baptism you enter into union with Christ and through the keeping of works of faith you stay in there, which basically takes away the perseverance of the saints and also um, changes the gospel into something which it is not. Now they saw something that was uh, laudable. They saw that the gospel had become too subjectivistic in American evangelicalism, because it would be my thing with Jesus. And they say, no, 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 Jesus hasn't saved just a bunch of individuals. He has saved uh, a whole people. There's more of an objective element to salvation. And they saw that, and they, I think they saw that rightly. But as so often in the reaction, they went too far the other way and made salvation almost completely objective that there is no subjective element anymore, that through baptism we come into union with Christ and through the keeping of good works, which are boundary markers, we stay uh, in the covenant of grace. That was not new. That was basically the first one who taught something like that was Kirsten Stendhal in Sweden, a, a Lutheran. I don't want to bore you with that, but then there was anti Wright in England with his new perspective on Paul, and they just picked it up and make it suitable for the Reformed, especially for uh, uh, Presbyterians. So completely, uh, almost completely objectivized salvation without subjective elements uh, of regeneration. And um, so I don't want to go deep into that, how far Wilson has now repented or not. I have never seen him really repenting of it. And if that doesn't happen, I stay away from him. That doesn't mean that he never has something good to say. Uh, but uh, just so we're very clear, uh, I'm not a follower of Doug Wilson. I know he's very popular right now, and young men are, are completely in armored because he's so cool. I understand that he's a very smart man. But unless this federal vision issue has been dealt with by him, um, I will warn uh, people uh, of following him. Another false view is naturalism. And that would be the modernists, the liberals. Uh, they would say that uh, nothing supernatural happens in our salvation. 
You see, the federal visionists would still say our salvation is supernatural. There, there is no doubt. The modernists would go further. They would say there's nothing supernatural. Jesus is just a good teacher, and we follow him. And that's how we become or are Christians. So it has become fully um, horizontal for them. And then, you know, in the history of America, the New England, um, when New England became liberal, it was called Unitarianism. And, you know, then you have Pelagianism in the, in the early church. And uh, it was always around that it becomes, that being a Christian becomes a human thing. And the supernatural is being stripped. The work of the Holy Spirit is being stripped uh, uh, from it. And, um, uh, for example, the virgin birth, of course, was attacked. And then, of course, uh, the resurrection, regeneration, all the supernatural parts. That, that, that's what would constitute a classical liberal in theology, both in this country and in Europe. Let's take away all the supernatural and make everything um, uh, horizontal. And then, of course, we have Arminianism. Arminianism, Arminianism is a difficult issue to talk about because uh, there's uh, strong opinions uh, among people, there are, there are people, and especially reformed, in the reformed camp that would say Arminians are automatically excluded from the kingdom because they do not have the right gospel. I, I gotta say, I, um, I never went that far. I, I, don't, I, I cannot go that far. The Synod of Dort uh, didn't go that far. Uh, they didn't say that uh, Arminians are not saved. Uh, they, just get, they just say it's an extreme aberrance from the truth of the gospel, but it still in its core has the gospel. Uh, what does Arminianism believe? Arminianism believes that uh, salvation is basically a cooperation, or the application of salvation is a cooperation between man and God, and that God can do nothing unless man uh, first agrees to it. So basically, man has... Um, the power. Man triggers everything. And, and they, they use texts like, one of the texts they use often is uh, Revelation chapter 3, verse 20, in the uh, uh, letters to the churches with the church of Laodicea. See, I stand before the door and I knock. If anyone opens the door, the Father and I will come in and, and so forth. But, but uh, there is a there's a big problem. First of all, this text is not a text about evangelism. Uh, I think that is a mis misuse of the text. As I said, this Revelation chapter 3, verse 20 is in the letters um, to the churches. And it's about the church that has basically uh, in the process of turning away from Christ. And there's a church that is still ongoing. See, the letters of the church, I should have said that, the letters to the churches, these were real churches. Uh, I don't know why we mystify Revelation to a degree that it's unrecognizable as a book to, to understand with your mind. These were real letters to real churches at the time when this book was written about 64 AD. And uh, Laodicea was a real church. And, um, and it says... Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and dine with him and he with me. Well, this talks about Christ, not about the Holy Spirit. They act as if it talks about the Holy Spirit. And they say, well, look, uh, the Holy Spirit, you have to trigger the Holy Spirit. And without you triggering him, he can do nothing. And we as Reformed would say, in line with the scriptures, I believe, that the Holy Spirit 
uh, initiates and completes salvation because he gives us a new heart. He makes us able and willing to believe. And he does the whole thing. And, and therefore, I mean, I do understand why some will say that Armenians cannot be believers, but I would say not so fast because I don't believe, I don't think I've ever met a real Armenian because I don't think any Armenian is consistent. Um, okay, they believe that, but they, they still pray for the salvation of their neighbors, right? So if they were consistent Armenians, they would not pray to God for the salvation of the neighbor. They would pray, for, uh, they, they would pray to their neighbor to, trigger the, to allow the Holy Spirit to save them. They don't do that. And that's why we can say that on their knees, every Armenian becomes a Calvinist. So I'm, I'm very, we got our judgment must be a little bit more charitable. I've mentioned it over the last few weeks and months several times. I'm very concerned, very concerned about the new harshness in the, in the reformed movement. That has never, this is not reformed. This has never characterized the reformed movement. This harshness, calling everyone and their brother an unbeliever. Uh, usually the reformed uh, had the judgment of charity as long as there was anywhere in that gospel was the true Christ. You know, and here we are and saying, if you don't believe this, if, you don't, if you're not a post-millennialist, if you're not a theonomist, if you're not, you can't be a believer. That was, I don't know what religion that is, but it is not the Reformed faith. Uh, even the Puritans, uh, maybe we have given the false impression by talking about the Reformers or talking about the Puritans as, as if they were all one homogeneous mass who all exactly believed the same. If you dig a little deeper into the Puritans, you will see that among the Puritans there was everything from blatant antinomian through semi-Pelagian, Baxter, uh, to uh, Westminsterian. So who are the Puritans? You know, or the Reformers? I mean... Uh, People say, Calvin, okay, if you really deal properly with the life of Calvin, you've got to see how often that man changed his opinions. At some point, he held Luther's, Luther's view on the Lord's Supper. I think we have maybe transported a wrong view that there, was, there were the Reformers and there were the Puritans and they were all absolutely the same opinion and, and the Synod of Dort and the Westminster uh, divines, they were... <coughs> all united. That is absolutely not true. Absolutely not true. And, that's the, and, and this is what bothers me. There are so many angry people running around who don't know, uh, you know, they, they don't know anything, but they make all these big statements. They have never studied history. They have not studied the Puritans. They have not studied the Reformers. And here they know everything. You want to pour your hair, as you see, I've already done it. You want to rip your hair out, you know. There is so little knowledge and so big mouths on Facebook, uh, it is just unbearable. We have to be more charitable than that. And look at the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, he, he completely goes under in our minds with his charity, with his judgment of charity. And I know exactly what they would say. No. Oh, he's a compromiser. That's the, 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 that's the weapon. He's a compromiser, you know. Then go to your leaders, go to your bearded, angry leaders and to your blog post masters and bother them in their churches. But don't go on Facebook and insult everyone and their brother for things that you think you know, but you do not know diddly squat about anything. 
This way we cannot live together as Christians. In this Christianity, I do not want to be a minister. And I told this to God many times. If this doesn't change, I'm done. If we as the people of God cannot show another way to this world, then we have become worthless as the church. We have ceased to be salt and light in this world. People look at us and say, you're more stupid than we are. And I got to say, you know, you do have a little point there. If you see what's going on, it's just angering. And as a minister, I'm now at the point, I say, people, you, this is who we are. You don't like it? To say it with a famous Austrian philosopher, hasta la vista, baby. Yeah. That's how we roll now. We've got to be different. We've got to reflect uh, the ways of Christ and not our own pride in some petty way. Uh, th- those who know me know that I don't play games with doctrine. But, but a soul is, is a, a tender thing. A Christian is precious in the eyes of God. And if you run around and call them unbelievers uh, just because they do not agree on every iota and tittle uh, with your Pharisaic knowledge, I'm sorry, you make me an enemy. And uh, that's my duty as a minister, to protect the weak uh, from the bullies, and this will not happen as long as I have anything to say. So Arminians in doubt... Brothers and sisters, I yesterday did a sermon, a wedding in the Church of Christ. I mean, they're out there, you know, they're out there. They really are. But then I talked with the minister, you know, and I I really thought, you know, I'm dealing with a brother. And the guy says, look, don't judge every single congregation by what somebody in their denomination says, you know. Um, Let's be patient. I have no idea how I got there. Oh, the, the false doctrines, yeah. Um, that doesn't mean we don't defend the true doctrine. That doesn't mean that Arminianism is right. That doesn't mean that we should go along with everything. But measure, balance, you know, always in charity, always in love. Speak the truth in love. The second part is often forgotten. In fact, somebody posted something and said, well, truth is more important than love. Uh, uh, and somebody else uh, answered Uh, or put the comment on there and said, well, I would say both is important. And then he said, well, the second one is a, how how did he say? It's a a presuppositional proposition. And I'm like, the first one too, what are you, nuts? You know, and and, uh, I didn't say that, of course. I I behave myself um, uh, on on Facebook, you know. And and then he said, well, uh, pastors are compromisers and, and truth is more important than love. Says You made two terrible mistakes here. The first is a false dichotomy. The second one is tuning in on this unvoked pastor bashing that's going around. All pastors in their cushy jobs are all compromisers or tyrants. One of the two. Compromisers or tyrants. We cannot get it right. We've been called compromisers and tyrants by these uh, angry young reformed. Anyway, that's fine. I can live with it. Um, as long as they leave my congregation alone, they can call me whatever they want. Um, now, the Reformed view, and that's important. We cannot learn every false doctrine. It's better to know the truth well. As Reformed, we clearly have, and also the Kyperians. I don't want to be unkind here. We all have a supernatural view of salvation. So it would be wrong to say that those who believe in presumptive regeneration do not believe that there is a birth from above. They just don't talk about it and they assume it. 
So let's, they're not naturalists. They just don't, don't want to deal with it. And uh, that's, that's just what they've chosen to do. But our view as Reformed is supernatural. There is a birth from above, uh, exactly as described in, in places like John chapter 3, that unless we're born again, we cannot even see uh, the kingdom uh, of God. Sinful man, and that is the point, completely depends on God's supernatural act of salvation. Uh, by the way, Federal Vision would also say, I mean, they wouldn't deny the birth from above. We've got we've to remain um, fair here and must not become um, dishonestly um, polemical. But the birth of above is supernatural. The whole application of salvation is supernatural. Um, so while the uh, accomplished salvation is by Jesus Christ in its accomplishment, the application is the business of the Holy Spirit, if I may call it that way, in a cavalier manner. And then we have something that is called the, the ordo salutis. Um, I'm, just, I'm just saying it because it's such a common term if you ever run into it. Ordo salutis is, is, is funny. It's actually, you know, in, I still had to learn Latin in Europe. Um, in fact, I, I didn't want to. I, but then I really enjoyed it because Latin is actually quite a regular language. So I had to learn Latin. But it's funny that so many Reformed use Latin as if they knew it, but they don't, don't know it. So they throw around all these, these Latin terms, uh, which I'm not very happy about because Latin is not what we speak in this country, right? We speak English. So this is just one that is often used. It, it doesn't harm if you know it. It means the order of salvation. And the order of salvation just talks about, um, in a logical manner, how is our salvation applied to us in steps. And of course, if anyone has ever been uh, in a seminary for two days or for a cup of coffee, they will tell you, well, this is just a logical order. It's not the chronological order because God is outside of time. Forget about it. We're talking about for us to understand how salvation works, the steps of salvation, how they are described in the scriptures. Yes, it's a logical order, but I don't even go there, whether it's chronological or logical. These are things that are too high for us. Whether God is inside or outside of time, what it means that God is outside of time, these are things that we do not understand anyway. We just want to understand how scripture explains to us the steps, how we are, are being saved. And it begins with what is called uh, effectual calling. And our interns better listen well because this is a standard question in ordination exams and, and rightly so. This is very important. Effectual calling. This is basically the call of the gospel. This is um, the call that would be calling, okay? We, when when uh, Jordan goes in front of an abortion clinic and preaches the gospel, then this is calling. Now, let's say he preaches to five or to ten, and let's say one falls on their knees and professes Jesus Christ and believes and trusts in Jesus Christ. Then ten were called, but only one was called effectually. And what, what is the difference between the calling 
and effectual calling. The calling is, that's the call that goes out into all the world. But for some, this call becomes effectual because he suddenly hears it in a saving way. And he hears it in a saving way because the Holy Spirit does it. The Holy Spirit uh, gives him uh, an understanding. Um, he hears it in a way that he understands the gospel. It falls on fruitful ground. He hears it in a saving way. And then we have the second step, which is conversion. Now, that, that of course, is the official... Um, that's the official term, but I want to tell you that conversion is not a term that the scriptures use. Um, and uh, I don't want to confuse you, but let's write down. This is described from how, how we see it, how we experience it, right? But conversion is basically faith and repentance, right? Um, faith and repentance, what comes first? Repentance or faith not going there. Uh, we had this discussion in seminary, and, and Dr. Smith said something very wise, because I asked him. I said, so here that we debate about faith and repentance, which comes first? And he, I never forgot it. He said, they're the same thing, they're the two sides of the same coin. I think that makes sense. Uh, so we can say, logically, these two come together. Faith. and repentance. Of course, the Bible speaks about regeneration. That's the new heart, right? And uh, regeneration actually comes before the cult becomes effectual, because unless you regenerate it, uh, you see, this assumes that the heart has been changed. So you could put the point zero here and put in regeneration. But this is the official Reformed version of the order of salvation. Now, there was a big controversy um, in the 1600s or early 1700s in Scotland where the repentance is a requirement for salvation. And it became a, a big, big debate. Uh, I've dealt quite a bit with this question. Is repentance a fruit uh, of faith or is it faith? Uh, my advice is don't go there. Uh, I think it is both. Uh, it is a repenting faith that we receive. Saving faith is a repenting faith because true faith understands that you're a sinner, right? So it's a repenting faith. And repentance also becomes a lifelong fruit uh, of true regeneration. So you realize you, you see a Christian and you recognize a Christian also whether he has a repenting, a life of repentance. I mean, we do not become perfect uh, at regeneration. We, we still sin, and therefore repentance must be a part, our life must be a life of repentance. That's one of the things where our humility comes from, right? And uh, that's what we do at the Lord's Supper. We will do it tonight again. We have this self-examination. And we say that the Lord's Supper is not for perfect people, but for repentant people. That's why we bring the law, to make sure we stay in repentance. And and this is the point where I'm at a loss, you know. If, if you understand how bad you are, you understand that you constantly have to repent, how can you be so prideful in becoming a heresy detector as the main profession of your life? 
I don't, I, these people, I, I got to tell you, and this is me being at a loss, people who constantly criticize the purest police, or whatever you want to call them, I wonder if a person like that can actually be converted. Be, because there is no humility there. There is no, there is always constantly detecting who's wrong, constantly going on rigorous positions, you know, I'm excluding myself from this, I'm excluding myself from that, because this guy's wrong, this guy's wrong. That must assume that I'm the right one. And I, I give you in comparison R.C. Sproul, the great R.C. Sproul, who has more wisdom, had more wisdom in his little finger than these guys have all together in their brains, said, I know I'm a heretic in some areas. I don't know what he said, 20%? I'm surely wrong. And he said, I don't know what these 20% are, otherwise I would change it. You never hear these guys say anything like that. They're always right, always right, you know. And uh, I have declared war on this mindset. Um, when I was a young believer, I was the same way in seminary. I knew it all. I should have never been released into pulpits. Uh, and then God has a way. He beats you up uh, in a very good way. And, and then you realize who you really are. And then you, you run to him with a, a tail between your legs. And, and then he starts working on you. And so, please, repentance is a, a way of life for a Christian. And where there's no repentance, there is no... Um, there's no, uh, yeah, where there's no repentance, there's no faith. That would be my take. Um, then we have uh, number three, and we have um, justification. This is how God looks at us as righteous. In Jesus Christ. You see, that, that's why we're a little bit careful saying this is really a temporal order because these kind of merge into each other in a way because when are we justified? When we're converted or when we're regenerated? You know, so this is just a logical order for us just to understand the principle. And justification is when, a, when a, a sinner trusts in Jesus Christ, he's at once and for all and for always considered righteous. Uh, when you put your trust in Christ, you're justified. That doesn't mean that you are actually just. You are being looked at as justified because, and that's the thing that should keep us humble. God looks at Jesus Christ when he looks at you. I mean, it says in the Psalms, who can come to God who has clean hands? So if that's a requirement in ourselves, you could never pray because you never have clean hands. It's the hands of Christ that are clean. When we come to God in prayer, we claim the righteousness of Christ, not our own. And God looks at us as just. And here's something you really have to understand, especially those of you who struggle with a lack of, of assurance of salvation. I would say 99%, if not 100%, of those who struggle with a lack of assurance are looking in the wrong place. You look at yourself, and then you see what a wretch you are, and then you start struggling, because you say, I can, I can impossibly be saved. And then you dig around in your own, with your own conscience, 
And what happens then, if I may use a medical term, your conscience gets inflamed. And when your conscience gets inflamed, it hurts. And it gets worse with your lack of assurance. Because you're looking at the wrong place. You look at yourself. But you have to understand that your justification, your righteousness, is not there in you. It's not there. It's in heaven with Christ. And this is not philosophical, what I'm saying now. It is de facto. Your righteousness is in heaven at the right hand of God, the Father Almighty. That's where you look for your righteousness. So you look at yourself and you see, oh man, what a wretch I am. Your next thought is not, I cannot be saved. But you look at Christ and you say, thank God my righteousness is safe there. Oh, he is my righteousness. That is how you find peace for your soul. But you're looking in yourself, what do you expect to find? You only find uh, uh, wretchedness. You, You only find evil. You find evil motives. You find falling short, falling short, falling short. And then you're getting scared. Now think about that. If you weren't regenerated, you wouldn't care. But you do care. You just look at the wrong place. Now, Robert Murray McShane, one of the best Puritans, I have to say, he died at the age of 28. This man was so godly, people started crying when he walked into the pulpit. It's unthinkable today. But anyway, he said, for every look at ourselves, we have to take 10 looks at Christ. And he was absolutely right. Um, That's where you find your assurance. Your righteousness is in heaven. And and your righteousness has a name, and uh, your righteousness' name is Jesus Christ. So when God looks at you, and that's the only reason why he loves you, He couldn't love you. He wouldn't love you if he looked at you and your righteousness. But he looks at Christ. He looks at the wounds of Christ. He looks at his accomplished work, and he loves you because he loves his son so much. So that's justification. Then we have adoption. And that is a doctrine. I'm very grateful that in seminary we had a professor who dealt very much with adoption, And he always said that the doctrine of adoption is kind of fallen through the cracks in the order salutis. But it's a very important doctrine because not only are we saved and justified, not are we uh, only being furnished with eternal life, but we are received into the family of God. The moment we trust in Jesus Christ, we're not only justified, we're being adopted. So God looks at us as sons and daughters of his. That's why... Christ can be called our older brother because he um, is the firstborn of many. And that's why in Paul in 1 Corinthians 15 can bind the resurrection of Christ to our own. When he says, if, if Christ is not risen, then we are the poorest of all. But yet Christ is risen, and therefore we will rise. So the moment we believe, we are being received into the family of God. So we are children uh, of God Almighty. We are children of, 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 of God. We are brothers and sisters of Christ, adopted. Christ is the natural son of God, but we are adopted. So we are, and there's another horizontal implication on that, and that's what, for example, First John uh, pounds on, and that is not only are we all children of God, but in being children of God, we are brothers and sisters. And that's why First John really binds the love among Christians to true salvation. 
that there is not such a man or a woman who is loved by God but hates his brother or his sister. And, and I'm not a sentimental old fool. Well, I might still be, but because I'm saying that love among the Christians has become so important for me as a minister. I more and more understand that this is a discerning sign for true Christians. And that's why I'm, I don't say things lightly. That's why I say those who are always angry at their brothers and sisters, those who always criticize, who always find fault, you ha that's the ones I wonder uh, uh, whether they're truly in Christ. Because if we understand that we are wretched crooks that have been saved by grace alone, that we are adopted as children, then we are brothers and sisters, and how can we hate them? They are our brothers and sisters. They are more than our flesh and blood. They are brothers and sisters in, in Christ. And then, of course, the long process of sanctification. Sanctification is a twofold thing. It is the mortifying of the flesh, which means the mortifying of sin, fighting against pride, fighting against uh, sinful hatred, sinful um, anger, uh, greed, uh, adultery. So the putting to death of sin, but not only that, but the bringing to life of righteousness. So it's a killing and resurrecting. And the places like Ephesians chapter 4, I think it's verse 22, where we are called to uh, put off the old man or put to death the old man and put on the new man. That's sanctification. It's a lifelong process of fighting against sin and fighting for righteousness um, uh, in our own lives. And that is uh, a lifelong process process. It's not an act, it's a process. Becoming more and more uh, like what God already looks us at in Christ. So we've already been considered righteous, but we are now more and more becoming what we are. But we know we're getting close to perfection in this life, just, just to be sure. I'm just saying that because there is a false doctrine around that's called uh, perfectionism. And perfectionism comes from the Wesleyan understanding of the application of salvation. The Methodists, the Wesleyans, um, they would say that, or Nazarenes, we, we can come to a point in this life where we don't sin anymore. And of course, this is a, a terrible mockery, a terrible mockery of the truth. Um, you can't be a believer and think that. But I don't think you should ever say, I'm now at the point... Uh, where I don't sin anymore. That's a, a terrible thing uh, to claim. Um, Romans chapter 7, where Paul wrestles, the things I don't want to do, I do. This is the Apostle Paul. The things I do, uh, I, I do want to do, I don't do. So if the Apostle Paul wrestles with his own sin, now you will tell me that in this life you can be righteous. Uh, I think that's a very presumptive uh, thing to do. And then, of course, glorification. Glorification happens when we die, or if a person should be around, when Christ returns, this happens in a moment. And glorification is the, 
the instant finishing or completing of our sanctification. Now, if you have listened to what I just said, and if you believe in perfectionism, then you would have to remove glorification because you're already perfect, to a degree at least. So, when we die, the moment we close our eyes and open them again, between the closing and opening, we are made perfect. And the major bulk of work in our sanctification is being accomplished in an instant. So you close your eyes at death, you open it the next moment, you will experience a completely new um, state of mind. You might look around in your mind and you can't think an evil thought. I mean, can you imagine? We don't meditate enough about these things, especially as we get older. We have to think about death and eternity a little bit more Otherwise, we're remaining too attached to this world. And if you're remaining too attached to this world, we're getting scared of death. But think about it often. You know, you close your eyes. Maybe in fear, I'm sure there's some fear in it, even among the most holy of us or the most sanctified. And then you close your eyes and you just hope it's true. And the next moment you open them. Can you imagine that thought? It was true. And there is Jesus Christ. And no more tears, no more pain, no more anger, no more sin. And you look around and it is all new. And that might be the last tear, right? Because you look back, what an idiot you were all your life. With your doubts, with your pettiness with your sin. And that's the tears that he will wipe away, I believe. And that was the last you cried. Because from now on, it's eternal bliss in the presence of God. People think of this more. Otherwise, we get too bogged down in this world. There's so much trouble. Look around. In a time like ours, we apparently are in a dip right now in this country. Uh, and it's, it's difficult to look around what's happening. And it's so easy to be bogged down in this, in this difficulty right now. Meditate. The Puritans said, meditate on heaven often. I mean, have you ever imagined that moment? That, who knows? Maybe you have cancer. Maybe you're in pain. Maybe you're not even thinking clearly on your deathbed. And then you realize it. And then you open your eyes. And it's like a completely new state of mind. And, and it's just pure joy. And, and Christ is there. Can you imagine? Meditate on this often. How will heaven be? You know, for a long time as a believer, I've thought that everything's spiritual in heaven. Because every, the Greek mindset is so prevalent in our minds. And I will be just like an ethereal spirit just floating around happily there, you know. No! It will be three-dimensional. There will be things to touch, to look at, to talk, to speak, to interact. And then you, 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 you stand there and you look around and you, you see beauty that you could never imagine. Never even imagine. It says it. Peter says it, right? Oh, you will rejoice with a joy that is unspeakable when you see the goal of your soul's longing. The salvation of your soul. And you look around and the beauty and the presence of God and beautiful brothers and sisters and praising God and singing and nature so beautiful that you couldn't even imagine. And then you ask yourself, how could I be such a fool? 
being weighed down with all this sin and with all these sorrows. Oh, would I have just given more, but that's over now. And Christ will say, it's good, it's over. I did it all for you, and that's, that's glorification. Meditate often on heaven. So now for the children, how is our uh, salvation a Trinitarian act? And this is how an elder once, one of my elders taught me, high theology in simple words. He said, the Father thought it, the Father decreed it, the Father thought it. The Son bought it with his own blood, and the Spirit brought it. That's how our salvation is a Trinitarian act. The Father thought it, the Son bought it, and the Spirit brought it. So the Father decreed it, the Son purchased it, and the Holy Spirit applied and does apply it. This order salutis, the application of our salvation, is a work of the third person of the Trinity, uh, the Holy Spirit, our salvation. Any questions?